If you have your Bibles with you, I'd invite you to grab them with me. We return this morning uh, to John chapter 6, the longest chapter in the Gospel of John, the longest chapter in the New Testament. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, we do have some Bibles available for you on the back cart, and you can follow along. The, the passage will show up here on the screen, but then it will disappear. And I'd uh, love for you to have it open in your lap so we can kind of go back to it and refer to it. I'm not up here to speak about what I think. I'm up here to speak what God thinks and what God says in his word. And uh, it's your responsibility to not only receive that, but to verify that as you have God's word before you. If you're visiting with us this morning, we did begin earlier this summer a series, a study on the Gospel of John, and we've just been working our way through chapter by chapter, verse by verse, taking each story, each chunk of a story as best we can, and talking about what God has for us in this passage. And so uh, we find ourselves this morning in the middle of John chapter 6. If you were here last week, we finished that extraordinary day a day that began with the feeding of the 5,000 that ended with Jesus walking on water in the wee hours of the morning. And you remember, those of you who were here last week, that this act of walking on the water and the earlier feeding of the thousands, that Jesus was out to display his glory, right, his deity. But there was a very public face to this. Obviously, when he fed the thousands from just this little boy's lunch, Everyone kind of saw what was going on, even though they probably didn't understand how it was happening and, and exactly what was going on. But there was also a very private point to that miracle. Of course, the walking on water was very private for the disciples only, as they were the only ones in the boat. But there was a very private point to even the feeding of the 5,000. And that's what we focused on last week, is this lesson for the disciples and for us in the impossible, Right? in the impossible. Well, today, John, uh, the Apostle John in this account, he moves and encourages us to consider the crowds and what was going on with the crowds, the masses who, remember, last night went to sleep with full bellies, having been fed on the hillside, and now they're awake. They're awake and they're wondering where Jesus has gone. And so that's where we pick up our passage today on the very next day, the very next morning after this extraordinary day that we looked at last week. And so I'm going to read John chapter 6, starting at verse 22, as is our habit here, our tradition, if you would stand for the reading of God's Word. John chapter 6, verses 22 through verse 40. John chapter 6, verses 22 through verse 40. Listen as I read. This is God's holy Word. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum, seeking Jesus." When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures 
to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. And so they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Please go ahead and be seated. This morning as we unpack the actions and the words of Jesus that we find here in this passage I just read to you, I want you to see two things. I want you to see the problem that he is diagnosing, the problem in these people, but ultimately the problem in us too, and the solution that he presents, which, spoiler alert, it's him. He is the solution. So the problem and the solution. Therefore, two exhortations this morning for us um, to hear and to digest from this passage And the first one is this, stop baking your own bread. Stop baking your own bread. Kind of an odd point, isn't it? I threw that out to my family. They didn't like it so much, but I liked it. I'm going with it. (laughs) It's peculiar, right? What are you saying, Pastor Nate? Why are you saying it that way? Stop baking your own bread. Well, my hope is that the peculiarity of it, the oddity of it, will make it stick in your brains, and hopefully we can hang some some good, rich truth on it that the Holy Spirit would like to impress upon your hearts. Stop baking your own bread. Let's jump back into the story. So the crowds are groggy-eyed and a bit confused. This was the crowd that was fed the night before by Jesus on the hillside. But they can't find Jesus. He's no longer on the eastern side of the lake. The Apostle John, who's writing this account, conveys the evidence of the miracle that the disciples witnessed, but that the crowd didn't necessarily see. The evidence isn't sinking in for the people, though, right? 
Last night, there was one boat here. It left. Jesus wasn't on it. Now, this morning, there's no boat here. Jesus is gone. According to John, they don't really press into this anymore. They simply continue in their pursuit of him with other boats that had since arrived to the shore. Well, lo and behold, this crowd, they find Jesus on the other side of the lake. But the question is not the one that we think they're going to ask, is it? And it's the first indication, I think, that something's a little bit off in their thinking. And this brings up the first kind of sub-point of that exhortation that I want to explain. Before we talk about the baking that you need to stop, we're going to talk about the bread. Not just any bread, but your own bread. Stop baking your own bread. See, as these people find Jesus on the other side of the shore, what is the question that you think they should ask? How did you get here? And instead, they ask, when did you get here? You see, as it becomes more evident through Jesus' statements to them and his interaction with them, they are after Jesus not because they are in awe of him, not because they are eager to worship him. They are after him because they want more access to him. They want more of the stuff that they saw him do on the eastern shore of the lake. They want him for what their hopes for him are. And Jesus knows this. He knows their hearts. And so he doesn't answer their question about when he got here, but instead he calls out their misguided motives. Do you see what he does in verse 23? Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. You see, like the woman at the well that we talked about several weeks ago, Their focus is on the here and now. Remember she heard about the living water and she said, yeah, let me, I want to drink that all my days. They're focused on the here and now. They're focused on their own bread. And what is their own bread? A free meal. Full bellies. It's it's not that these things are bad. Right? The Lord knows that we're physical beings. He made us physical beings. He knows we need these things. He even knows that we want these things and that, that, that they're good things to want. It's just that their focus, this crowd's focus, these things have trumped in their lives, in their hearts, more, in sport, more important spiritual matters. And in this case, their bellies have trumped Jesus himself. They wanted Jesus, but they wanted their own Jesus. They wanted a Jesus for their own purposes. John had already hinted, if you have your Bibles, back in verse 15, John had already hinted that that these people, they wanted to make him king. Remember that? And Jesus disappeared because of that very intention. They wanted to make him a king who would take care of their physical needs, who would feed them, a king who would take care of their political needs and overthrow the oppressive Roman government that they were dealing with. But that's not what Jesus was about. And that's not what Jesus came to do. His focus was deeper than simply full bellies. 
and having the reins of earthly power. His kingdom was spiritual and addressed greater needs. Verse 14, they may have already confessed that he was the prophet. Do you remember that? The one who, prom- the one who was promised, who was greater than Moses. They may have recognized that, but they don't want a prophet. They don't want a prophet because what are prophets about? Prophets address matters of sin. Prophets call God's people out. Prophets speak God's word of rebuke in their lives. And that's not the Messiah that they long for. And so, they want their own bread. The bread that they think they want. The bread that they think they need. And the question is, for us here today, are we any different than the crowds? I think that's the challenge. Our tendency, like them, is to focus on the material. And and if, if that remains our focus, it will shape our view of our God. It'll shape our view of Jesus. One pastor I dug into this week gave helpful insight on this. He said, if our bread is stuff and we don't get the stuff that we think we need or want, then we conclude that God is stingy, right? And that God must not be for us or that there is something wrong with us. If our bread is stuff and we do get it, and we are blessed with comfort or with some measure of earthly possession, then suddenly God becomes about our prosperity, right? Bringing us blessing in the form of earthly comfort and wealth. And my, how we have a problem with that in the evangelical church. Jesus came not to give this kind of bread. Jesus came to give himself. And they had missed the entire point of the feeding. Jesus says to them in verse 27 that there is a greater food that endures to eternal life. And it's bound up with the one whom the Father has sent. And they're still not getting it. So you notice they ask in verse 30 for another sign. Another sign. I guess they figure that, well, if Jesus is offering greater food that extends to eternal life, then greater food deserves a greater sign, right? And then they bring up Moses. So they're getting a little bit of the Old Testament tie-in, but they're not, it's still not making absolute sense to them. They conclude Moses fed a nation for like years, right? Manna from heaven. Jesus, you only did one meal for like a few thousand people. Surely, you can do something better to show us who you are. Again, they want from Jesus what they want from Jesus. But that's not what Jesus is about. Again, he could have made it shower cornflakes in that very instant. But that's not what he came for. He came to be the true bread himself. And so stop baking your own bread. 
Ask yourselves, what exactly do you want from Jesus? The life he came to give you, the life he is giving you, or the one you think you deserve? Do you want Jesus for him, or do you want Jesus for what you think he can do for you? That's the own bread part. What about the second part of that phrase, or the first part of that phrase, the baking? Jesus says in verses 27 and 29, do not work for or bake the food that perishes, but the food that endures to eternal life. This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. This passage is a reminder for us that we're doers, aren't we? We love to do. But what must we do, the people ask in verse 28? Every religion in our world stresses the doing. The five pillars of Islam, the meditation of Buddhism, the sacrifices of Hinduism, even the laws of Judaism. Do, do, do. Even the irreligious stress the doing. I'm enough. I'm good. I don't need that crutch. I got this. Right? We take pride in our performance. And Jesus says something different. Christianity says something completely different. Jesus says here what the work of God is. What God requires is to believe. To rest in what has been done. This, this is the gospel. Romans 3.20, for by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one can boast. Our best efforts fail. So stop doing. Stop baking altogether. Just take and eat what has been given. And that's the second exhortation this morning. Fill yourselves with the bread of heaven. Stop baking your own bread and fill yourselves with the bread of heaven. Verse 35, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. No more hunger, no more thirst. Just receive me. The baking, the making is done. Just grab it and lift it to your mouth. Here in verse 35, we find the first of what will be seven I am statements. We've talked about that a little bit. We talked about it last week. Jesus intentionally ties himself to both Moses, which he'll continue to do throughout the book of John, but also to God's revelation to Moses in Exodus chapter 3, when Yahweh appeared to Moses and said, I am, I am who I am. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. See, Jesus and John is establishing himself not simply as the prophet greater than Moses, but as the one who met Moses. 
The one who not just parted the sea, or excuse me, held up a rod to part the sea, but the one who trampled on the sea. The one who provided manna from heaven for all those years. I am this God, Jesus says. I am the bread of heaven that you were made to consume. And so Jesus unpacks here in this metaphor two aspects of what it means that he is the bread. First of all, Jesus is the bread that satisfies. Verse 35, whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. We talked about this some weeks ago with the woman at the well, right? There, the prominent metaphor was the water, the living water. Here, the prominent metaphor is the bread, the bread of life. But the same questions come up in our experience, in our lives. What are we filling ourselves with? What do we believe will satisfy us in our lives? Our work, our our savings, our security, our leisure, our pleasure. What are, to use Jeremiah's term, what are those empty cisterns that we are making and storing in our houses that cannot hold any water? Again, those things are not bad, but if... If they are are our life, our focus, Jesus reminds us we're going to be hungry all the time. And we're not going to be happy either. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the British pastor, says, They alone are truly happy who are seeking to be righteous. Put happiness in the place of righteousness and you will never get it. Jesus, His righteousness, our lives lived in Him must be what we're about because only He can satisfy. Let me read one more quote from the theologian Thomas Oden. He says, Human reasoning is created by God with a capacity for reaching towards God by thinking and choosing and speaking. Human freedom is created by God with a capacity for responsiveness to God. Human personality is created with the restless yearning for communion with the unseen but present personal God. Created by God, created for God, only God can satisfy And so John reminds us and Jesus reminds us to repent of our earthly pursuits and seek first him and his righteousness. Fill yourselves with the bread of heaven. Be about knowing him through his word, living in union with him, crying out independence upon him. Jesus is the bread that satisfies, so fill yourself with him. But there's another Amazing truth in Jesus' words here in John 6. And it's this, that Jesus is the bread that not just satisfies, but Jesus is the bread that sustains. And when I say sustain, I mean to the very end. In these brief statements that Jesus gives here in John chapter 6, he gives us a glimpse behind the curtain to God's sovereignty in our salvation. This last section of the passage that I just read has some of the clearest statements about the doctrines of grace 
that there are. This rich teaching about the nature of our redemption and the God who brings it about. And we're not going to deep dive into all these this morning, but don't worry, John and Jesus will bring them up again in the Gospel of John. And I know that some of you here have known and loved these truths for years. But for others, these will be relatively new in the way that you look at how God has saved you, how God has brought you to himself. These are big truths, friends, because this is a big God. The reformer Martin Luther said to his contemporary Erasmus, when they were discussing these things, he said to Erasmus, your God is altogether too human. This isn't a human God. This is a God who is God. And so, as we close this morning, three key phrases to unpack in this one powerful verse. Verse 37. I'm going to go phrase by phrase. Verse 37. All that the Father gives to me, Jesus says. Behind this simple phrase is a covenant. The covenant of redemption, this relationship and agreement within the Trinity between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit to save a people through the work of the Son. And this would be a people, the Father said, that would not be chosen based upon their works, but simply because the Father chooses to have mercy upon them. Romans 9, 15 and 16 He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Ephesians 1, verse 4, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. This, brothers and sisters, this one little phrase is the doctrine that we call unconditional election. God chose you. He gives to you His Son to make your salvation possible. But what about free will? What about the freedom to do, to choose? You are free. To do whatever you want. But with a will that is bound in sin, you'll never want Him. That's the problem. He must intervene. And He has given the grace to set His affection on some. And so Jesus says, all that the Father gives to me. And then the second phrase He says in verse 37 will come to me. Will come to me. The grace that draws is a grace that is too good, that is too powerful to resist. You see, Jesus' confidence is in the Father's power, not the people's ability to come to Him, to take and eat of the bread of heaven, but in the Father's choice and in His grace. Jesus didn't just make it possible for those who figure it out The fact of the matter is we don't just figure it out. He made salvation inevitable for those whom the Father chooses. The theologian John Murray says it this way, God the Father draws men, 
He places holy constraint upon them. He calls them into the fellowship of the Son and presents them to Christ as trophies of the redemption that Christ himself has accomplished. Do you know what we call this? Unbelievable and irresistible grace. All that the Father gives to me will come to me, Jesus says. And then finally, All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Then just a few verses away, Jesus backfills this statement in verse 39. He says, I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. As one commentator, I think, rightly calls this, this is a a glimpse of, into the keeping ministry of the Son, the keeping ministry of Jesus. To the end, I will lose none. God completely saves those whom He chooses. Philippians 1, 6, I am sure of this, that He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. John 10, we'll look at this verse later in our study John 10, 28, I give them eternal life, Jesus says, and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And then one of the, maybe, one of the most glorious golden passages in all of the New Testament, Romans 8, for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever snatch us from the Father's hand. You see, brothers and sisters, Jesus is declaring himself not as just the bread of life, the bread who satisfies, but the bread who sustains to the very end. The message of this passage and the invitation of Jesus is to fill yourselves with this bread. More Jesus, not less. All all alternatives that you chase this morning, that you chase this week, they're going to leave you wanting. So stop baking, stop making your own bread. You have been found. You are forgiven. And you are free. Free to stop working to be loved. Free to start resting in the reality that you are loved. Free to fill yourself with the one who emptied himself for you. Isn't that good news? Aren't these wonderful truths? Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the words of our Savior. These are things that are indeed too wonderful for us to use the words of David They're they're too high. We can't fully explain them. But we sit here humbled by your grace. Humbled by your sovereign mercy and affection in our lives. Humbled by the ability that you have given us to grab a hold 
of all that Jesus is, and we confess this morning our flesh, our flesh that we wrangle with, that distracts us, that, that feeds us a lie, that, that here and now is what we ought to be about. Oh, Father, I pray that in the lives of your people, the people who hear these words this morning, that you would do your work, whatever work needs to be done, loosening our grip on the things and the distractions and the stuff of earth and giving us more of Jesus. Oh, Holy Spirit, we need your help. We need your grace. Give it to us, we pray. We ask humbly but confidently in the name of Jesus, the true bread that satisfies, the true bread of heaven that will sustain to the very end. In that name we pray, amen.